Well, good morning. My name is Mark Nix. I'm one of the pastors here at Orangewood, and I am honored as always to be able to preach the word this morning. And we're going to be continuing in our study of Proverbs. And today, as you have probably figured out by now, we're going to be looking at the heart. So uh, I invite you to read along with me as I read some of these passages from Proverbs. And if you are here in person, I would invite you to stand out of reverence for the word. So if it helps you to really take God's word and even at home or wherever you are, I invite you to stand as I read these passages. Proverbs 20, verse 5. The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Proverbs 21, 2. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Proverbs 29. Who can say, I have made my heart pure? I am clean from sin. Proverbs 4:23 Keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. Proverbs 27:19 As in water face reflects face so the heart of man reflects the man. And Proverbs 3:5 Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Holy God, we need you. We need your word. We need your wisdom. We need your spirit to lead us in truth. And we ask that you would do just that and that you would be glorified in each of our lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Uh, Many of you know, I have a two-year-old named Lucy, and when she was just a few weeks old and I was sleep-deprived and bewildered like all new parents are, my mom came into town to help Brandy and I take care of Lucy. And I remember there was one afternoon she said, I'm going to watch the baby. You guys just relax and do something that you want to do. And whether it was cool or manly or not, the thing that I wanted to do was take a bath and read a book. And so I did that. But the problem is that the book that I was reading was not a physical book. It was a book that was on my phone. And so I did what we all know that you shouldn't do, but many of us do anyway. I got in the bathtub with my phone. And I'm sure you think you know where this story is going, but I did not drop my phone in the bathtub. In fact, I was extremely careful And when I was done reading, I was going to put the phone on the floor outside of the tub, but I thought, no, water might splash on it. I'm going to take extra precaution. I need to get it raised up off the floor. So I thought, I'll put it on the toilet seat. And I was eye level with the toilet, and I reached over and let go of my phone and realized that the seat was not down. So I gently plunged my phone into the toilet. And as soon as I realized that, I scurried over, got my phone off, powered it off, and stuck it in a bowl of rice for a day. So when I powered it back on, it still sort of worked. It, it couldn't really be trusted to do the things that I wanted it to do. It was glitchy, and the screen kept going in and out, and I would push buttons, and they wouldn't do what I thought they were going to do. And the thing is, I didn't get mad at Apple because my iPhone was actually designed very well, but I had subjected my phone to something that it was never meant to be exposed to. So it didn't work right. And in the same way, 
Our hearts have been exposed to things that have corrupted them and made them untrustworthy. So I'm gonna keep using the phone as a metaphor this morning. And like all metaphors, it'll break down at some points, but I think, I think that it will get the point across. So when I talk about a phone, it's helpful for me to specify what I mean when, I, when I'm using the word, because I could be talking about Andy Taylor ringing up the switchboard operator back in the 50s or something like that, or I could be talking about a rotary phone from the 80s, but I'm talking specifically about a modern-day 2020 iPhone, a smartphone, and I'm specifically talking about one for this instance that isn't waterproof. So similarly, before we start talking about the heart too much, it's helpful if we ask, what do we mean when we talk about the heart? And more specifically, what does the Bible mean when it talks about the heart? And in ancient times, very little was known about the, the actual organ, the physical organ of the heart. The Bible uh, will make brief mention of, you can tell that they knew when it stopped beating, that meant someone was dead. But aside from that, you don't get much mention in scripture about the organ. The Hebrew word for heart is lave. It's basically the Hebrew letter for L, the Hebrew letter for V, and then we know that you fill it in with a long A sound, so it's lave. And lave appears in the Old Testament 853 times, and there's really no English equivalent to it. So even in Proverbs alone, it's translated a lot of different ways, and usually it's translated simply heart. So like in Proverbs 18, 12, it says, before destruction, a man's heart is haughty. But it's sometimes translated sense. And when I say sense, I don't mean like the sense of smell, but I mean like that boy ain't got no sense. So in Proverbs 19.8, it says, whoever gets sense loves his own soul. Or in Proverbs 15.32, lave is translated as reproof. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. Lave can also be translated as midst or center. In Proverbs 23:34, it says, you will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. So you can see just in the book of Proverbs, there are a lot of different ways that lave can be translated. And you'll find, as I found, that as you start studying the heart in the Bible, there is a whole lot to uncover. And I would say that that's a fair metaphor for what it's like when we examine our own hearts too. There's a lot more going on there than we're initially aware of. When we want to understand what the Bible means by heart, it may be helpful to take that last translation of midst or center. When we say something like, we're here in the heart of Orlando, what we mean is we're in the center of Orlando. Similarly, in the Bible, the heart is the center of a person. And I don't mean physically or literally that it's the center of a person, but the heart is the core of who a person is. It's synonymous with the spirit of a person. So scripture connects the heart to personality, to intellect, to memory, to emotions, and to the will. My favorite theologian, John Frame, puts it this way. The heart is the center of the personality. The person himself 
in his most basic character, scripture represents it as the source of thought, of volition, of attitude, of speech. So like Miss Ashley mentioned, Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. So Dr. Frame tapped into that idea that the heart is the source. It's the source from which the springs of life flow. So to keep your heart with all vigilance, that's not a word that we use a lot. It means that you don't stop attending to it. It's a task that never is never done. And it's critical because all the things we do as human beings spring from the heart. Our thoughts, our emotions, decisions, opinions, our words, our actions, all of it. They all have different functions, but they all flow from our hearts. And Proverbs 27, 19 puts it this way. As in water, face reflects face. So the heart of man reflects the man. See, in Solomon's day, uh, mirrors were not all that common. I'm sure Solomon had one because he was King Solomon, but the average person didn't have a mirror in their house. So they would literally keep pools of water so that they could see their reflection, but we use mirrors. So basically what this is saying is if you want to know what your face looks like, look in a mirror. If you want to know who a person is, look at their heart. But if it hasn't become immediately apparent, you'll find it's very difficult to look into people's hearts, especially our own. So if you heard our first uh, sermon on the Proverbs series, or if you know anything about Proverbs, you might remember that King Solomon wrote the bulk of these Proverbs. And I want you to consider this. Solomon was the son of King David, the King David. And so he had witnessed God's hand in his father's life. And on top of that, God spoke to Solomon. If you read Solomon's story in 1 Kings and in 2 Chronicles, you'll find that he had encounters with God in ways that few people do this side of heaven. God said, ask me for anything and I'll give it to you. And he made Solomon the wisest man on earth. And yet Solomon married foreign women, which had been forbidden. And I say women because scripture tells us that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And because of the influence of his wives and their foreign gods, Solomon committed idolatry. And ultimately he turned away from the Lord and broke the covenant. And this cost the kingdom. Solomon's sins led to the kingdoms being torn in two during the reign of his son, Rehoboam. So the question that I hope you're wondering is, how does that happen to the wisest man on earth? The guy who actually wrote these Proverbs, how does that happen to him? And I say, how does it happen? But they didn't happen to him. He chose to do these things. So how did the wisest man on earth fall into that kind of sin? The answer is his heart is an iPhone full of toilet water. His heart was corrupted by sin, exposed to conditions it was not designed for. And the same is true of my heart and the same is true of your heart. My phone, in my opinion, uh, is designed really well. It's light, it's sleek, it fits into my pocket. 
And yet I can do things that 30 years ago would have been unfathomable. I can make calls obviously, but I can also check my email. I can deposit a check. I can look up funny cat videos and send them to Pastor Tyler and Pastor Joe just to annoy them. I can watch Lord of the Rings. I can listen to the Beatles. I could even look at stocks if that meant anything to me at all. The list goes on and on. In fact, I don't even understand the depths of what my phone is capable of. But in the same way, God created us with flawless design. He made all things by the power of his word and of everything in the universe. He made you and me in his image. He gave us hearts with the capacity and inclination to love him and to love his creation and to love one another. But when Adam and Eve, our first parents, sinned, sin entered into all of creation and all of creation was corrupted. All of creation, including our hearts, were born into sin. King David, Solomon's father, said it this way in Psalm 51. He said, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. See, sin isn't an out there problem. It's not just a behavior that we can avoid or a rule that we can keep. We're born corrupted by sin, enslaved to sin. It's not an out there problem. It's an in here problem. Jesus in Mark chapter seven says this, for from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. And see, most of these things are sins that Proverbs specifically warns against. And the Lord Jesus Christ says they don't come from out there. They come from in here. Because my iPhone was dunked into a toilet bowl, it was incapable of functioning properly. I couldn't even trust it to do the things that I wanted to. I remember trying to type an H and like a pound sign and a seven would come up. In the same way, our corrupt hearts are incapable of functioning the right way. And the right way, the right way is obeying, worshiping, and loving God. After dropping my phone in the toilet, I tried my best to fix it. And when I say I tried my best to fix it, I don't mean I like got tools and opened it up or anything like that. I mean, I put it in a bowl of rice for a day. And my best effort didn't come even close to solving the problem. And in the same way, we're completely incapable of fixing our corrupted hearts. Proverbs 20 verse nine puts it this way. Who can say I've made my heart pure? I'm clean from sin. See, it's a rhetorical question, but the implicit answer is no one. No one can make their hearts clean. Both the psalmist and the apostle Paul say there are none who are righteous. No, not one. I want to tell you why I wanted to study the heart for this sermon. 
Every time I read Proverbs, there's one verse that always stands out to me that I'm compelled by. And I thought, I want to learn more about that. And it's Proverbs 20, verse 5. And this is what it says. The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. So the purpose in a man's heart refers to his motives, the thoughts, feelings, perceptions that motivate his actions. And they're like deep word water because uh, it's murky. It's hard to discern. And upon studying this verse and reading commentaries, it became, it became clear to me that the point of this verse is that someone with understanding can draw out the hidden motives of someone else's heart. And we know when we're dealing with others, sometimes people hide the motives of their heart in order to manipulate or deceive, but sometimes it's not intentional. Most of you probably know what it's like to talk to a friend who struggles to understand what they're doing or the decisions that they keep making, but it's easier for you to understand because you know them, you know their story, you know their blind spots and their certain propensities toward behaviors. You have a different perspective. And as we grow in wisdom and understanding, we're going to grow in our ability to draw out the purposes in another person's heart. I think that's a good thing. I think that is part of the goal of being a good parent, being a good teacher, being a good friend, being a good counselor. But what about our own hearts? What about our own motives? That's a different story. See, Jeremiah 17 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Notice how extreme that language is. It's deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And this is the Lord speaking through the prophet Jeremiah. It's extreme language. But the Lord goes on to say, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Only the Lord can understand our deceitful hearts. Solomon himself in 2 Chronicles 6.30 says, you, you only, Lord, know the hearts of the children of mankind. So this means we can't understand our own hearts but we still try, don't we? Think about how fascinated we are to learn more about ourselves. Think about how obsessed we are with personality assessments. There's the Enneagram, the Myers-Briggs, Strength Finders, DISC. There's your Hogwarts house. There's so many personality assessments. And we love learning about ourselves. Even the people who kind of roll their eyes and they're like, I don't care about your Instagram or whatever it is. They're still like, but seriously, tell me which one do you think I am? We desperately want to understand our hearts. I was Googling Myers-Briggs just to make sure that I was spelling it the right way for my sermon. And, and one of the things that popped up was an article about my Myers-Briggs type. And I was like, ooh, and I read the whole thing. That's not what I needed to be doing, but I read the whole article on my Myers-Briggs type. So I don't want you to mishear me. I'm not saying that it's bad or wrong to use personality assessments. They can be incredibly helpful if you don't use them to excuse behaviors or you don't use them to label other people. But here's my point. When you, 
learn what your disc letters are or your Enneagram number is, it doesn't settle things for you, does it? It's not like, oh, I understand myself now, so now I'm living consistently and I don't make any foolish or sinful decisions. Why? Because we can never truly know our own hearts. Only God can. And even if we could, our hearts are still corrupted by sin. So the way this plays out practically is that we are terribly inconsistent. We do things that contradict what we believe is right and what's important. It means that you may be a man who has a high view of women, but at work, someone cracks a sexist joke and you laugh at it because in that moment, it feels more important to you to be one of the guys and to be liked than to stand up for a high view of women. It means that you love your spouse more than anyone on earth, but you also reserve the harshest words for them. It means that when you're stressed out because you have a project due, you find yourself going down a YouTube rabbit hole for an hour instead of doing what you need to do. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 7:15, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. In psychology, this is called cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is when you have a strongly held belief, but you act contrary to it. But in reality, it's not really cognitive, is it? It's a matter of the heart. I believe many of the things that people experience as depression and other emotional distress comes from compounded cognitive dissonance. We are so inconsistent in what we believe and say is important to us and what we actually do. And I just want, I want you to think about what are the most important things to you? The four or five core things to who you are. It might be your relationship with God, your marriage, your friendships, your family, career, your passions, your goal to write a book or to start a podcast or to get into a PhD program, whatever it is. I want you to think about what those core things are And then look at this past week and ask yourself, did I do anything with my time and energy and resources that would point to the fact that that's what's important to me? And what did you do with your time? Did you read your Bible? Did you practice? Did you study? Did you write? Did you exercise? Did you spend a lot of time on Facebook? Did you spend a lot of time with a tub of ice cream? See, we're terribly inconsistent. A healthy heart is one in which all the streams that flow from the heart are aligned and consistent. Our thoughts, emotions, words, actions all point in the same direction. But see, this only works if they all point in the direction of Jesus Christ. But even this is impossible to do for ourselves because our hearts are deceitful above all things. See, I knew that my iPhone was malfunctioning because I submerged it in a toilet, but that didn't mean I could do anything to fix it. Does this paint a bleak bleak picture? It should. When we begin to realize how bad the news of sin is, it makes us realize how good the news of the gospel of of Jesus Christ is. When I took my iPhone to the store, it became immediately apparent that it was beyond repair. My phone didn't need a fix. I needed a new phone. 
And when I got a new phone, they didn't just give me like the same model I had, but one that wasn't full of water. They gave me a new phone, a new model. I got an upgrade. I had to get a new charger and I had to get a new case because my new phone was so different and it was so much better. And this is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news for your heart. The gospel is not news that even though your heart is still messed up, God will kind of tolerate you. And the gospel isn't news that your heart is damaged, but if you do enough good things, you might be able to fix it yourself. The gospel is this, your heart is damaged beyond repair and you are completely powerful, un, not powerful, powerless to do anything to fix it. But if only you repent of your sin and believe in Jesus Christ, he will give you a new heart, a new heart, a better heart. In Ezekiel 36, God talks about our corrupted hearts as being hearts of stone. And I want you to listen to what he says. The Lord says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, God doesn't tolerate our sin. He gives us new hearts and gives us his spirit to dwell within our hearts so that we're able to live how we were created to live. We're able to obey and love and worship him. So here's the rub. Many of us are Christians and yet we still don't understand our hearts. Many of us are Christians and yet we still do things that we don't understand and that we don't want to do. So if we have new hearts and God causes us to walk in his statutes, why do we still sin? Before you knew Christ, your heart was enslaved to sin. But by the perfect obedience and the death on the cross and the resurrection and the ascension to the right hand of the Father by Jesus Christ, you were set free from slavery to sin. But sin was not eradicated, not yet. Jesus' work of redeeming our hearts from slavery to sin has begun, but it won't be fully completed until he returns. So even though we're free from slavery to sin, we still can and do sin. We're in the awkward engagement period. Over the past several years, I've had the honor of doing premarital counseling with lots of couples and I can say, I don't think any of the couples would look back on the engagement period and say, those were the best days of our life. That was the best time in our relationship because it's actually just awkward and stressful and uncomfortable. It's like, you know, you're going to be with that person for the rest of your life, but you're not. You have these desires to do things that you can't do yet. And the time that you do spend together, you want to just be with each other and laugh together and enjoy one another. But instead, you're arguing over catering prices and the color of tablecloths and silly things like that. It's like you're on this trajectory toward being one flesh, but you're not there yet. You know it's going to happen, 
but you're not there. And that's where we find ourselves. We are engaged to be the bride of Christ. And even though you're no longer a slave to sin, you still can and do sin every single day. The gospel is not one and done because we continually need the blood of Jesus and we continually need to be reminded of who we really are. Saints, holy saints, righteous, redeemed, sons and daughters of the King, co-heirs with Christ. That's who you are, Christian. And don't misunderstand me. We don't seek to obey God because we're worried that we're going to lose our salvation or that we need to do a bunch of things to somehow earn it. Jesus did all that for us. But now that we're in a right relationship with God, we seek to be like Jesus and live the way we were created to be. But it's because we're still capable of sinning and still incapable of fully knowing our hearts that we need Proverbs. We need to hear the charge from Proverbs 4 to keep our hearts with all vigilance. Our hearts are being redeemed and will be fully redeemed, but they're not done cooking yet. And this is why Proverbs 3, 5 is probably the most well-known of all the Proverbs. You probably know it. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord trust in the Lord. This is where you have to listen to the wise and not to the lies. Because what does our culture say? What does our world say? It says, listen to your heart. Go with your heart. Trust your heart. And I want you to understand what I'm saying. I'm a counselor. I'm a musician. I'm about as artsy and feely as they come. And I greatly value um, feelings, emotions, passions. I think they're deeply important. But I can tell you, even as a Presbyterian pastor, that if I trust my heart, I'm going to become a wishy-washy, relativistic, flaky mystic if I just listen to my heart because it's so deceptive. I have to stand firm on the foundation of God's word, of God's truth in scripture, not the way I feel about a certain thing because God knows what's best for you and for me and my heart doesn't always point in that direction. So what do we do to keep our hearts with all vigilance like Proverbs 4 says? Well, first, we have scripture as our foundation, which means we're reading it, we're memorizing it, we're consulting it for clarity when we're not sure what we're supposed to do. And we have to realize even as we look to scripture for what we should believe and how we should live, the lens by which we view scripture is clouded by our own stories and our own desires and our own preferences and biases. All kinds of dumb things have been done in the name of Christ throughout the history of the church. And they even use scripture to back it up. So that means we can't do this alone. To keep our hearts with all vigilance, we need to study the scriptures in community We need the church. We need one another so that we don't wander off into left field. To keep our hearts with all vigilance, we need to lean on the only one who actually knows our hearts. And like David in Psalm 139, it's the same passage that Jack read earlier. We should constantly pray, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. 
like Miss Ashley told us earlier, we have to keep reminding ourselves of what's true, those rocks of truth. As my young adult community has discussed these sermons over the past few weeks, we've taken on big subjects like anger and pride and envy. And what keeps coming to the surface is that if we grasped how much God loves us, how truly loved we are, and how when God says to the older brother and the prodigal son, everything I have is yours, if we truly grasped that and believed that, we wouldn't care what others think. We wouldn't need to be right all the time. We wouldn't need to prove that we're better than someone else because it just wouldn't matter. I would be confident and content to be who I am with the gifts that God has given me. To keep our hearts with all vigilance, we've got to keep reminding ourselves and one another of what's true about God and what's true about ourselves. The Apostle Paul, in the first chapter of his letter to the church in Ephesus, he prayed this prayer over them. He prays for his brothers and sisters and says, prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. That's my prayer this morning for myself and for each of you. Let's pray. Holy God, our hearts are so easily swayed. There are so many uncertainties in the world. We still find ourselves months into this in a global pandemic, not knowing what's right, not knowing who to trust, not knowing who to listen to. We hear of racial tension. We hear of politics. We hear of all of these divisive elements and our hearts are so easily swayed. So we need you, Lord, to search our hearts and to know us. We need the solid foundation of scripture. We need the truth that you bring, Holy Spirit. We need you to enlighten the eyes of our heart and remind us of what's true. For my brothers and sisters this morning who are watching and listening, whether they call themselves Christians or not, I pray that as they seek to know themselves, they would find they are seeking to know you. And Lord, you can be known and you can be found. May you draw each of us to yourself. We pray all these things in the blessed name of Christ. Amen.